following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credit for participation in this activity or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auau.auanet.org. This educational activity is supported by independent educational grants from Olympus Corporation of the Americas and Teleflex. Welcome everyone. I'm Dr. Jay Rahman, Professor and Chief of Urology at Penn State Health and Chair of Education for the American Urologic Association. Thank you for joining us for the AUA University podcast series. For this session, I'm pleased to introduce the course director for the AUA's virtual course series on the surgical management of BPH, Dr. Stephen Kaplan. Dr. Kaplan is director of the Men's Wellness Program at the Mount Sinai Health System and professor of urology at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. He's an internationally renowned authority and one of the primary thought leaders in the study of benign diseases, the association of metabolic factors with voiding dysfunction, as well as symptoms related to both benign prostatic enlargement and bladder function. Dr. Kaplan is also the AUA's chair of urologic research. I'd like to thank Dr. Kaplan and all of the virtual course faculty for sharing their time, talent, and expertise with the global urologic community on this topic area. Good. Uh, thank you, Dr. Raman. Hi, I'm Dr. Stephen Kaplan. It is my pleasure to welcome you to the Surgical Management of BPH podcast, which is an introduction to the virtual course series that the AUA will be offering in English, Spanish, Portuguese, and French. The surgical management of BPH has been rapidly advancing due to the development of new technologies and treatments. Urologists have traditionally been early adopters of new technology, and this upcoming virtual course series will utilize surgical videos to demonstrate various minimally invasive BPH surgical techniques while featuring an interactive case-based discussion of the AUA's BPH clinical guidelines and how will it affect clinical practice as well as a review of ongoing pivotal clinical studies and implications for patient care. For today's podcast, we're focusing on the learning objectives of one, describing the role of the AUA clinical guidelines for the surgical management of BPH, B, two, discussing the evidence base for current technologies, including pivotal studies, and be able to define the role and clinical expectation for each of them, and three, interpreting the current clinical results and comparing the patient experiences of these treatments in relation to more established and even abandoned treatments for patient groups with similar characteristics. Uh, joining me today, and it's a great pleasure to introduce them, is Dr. Dean Elderman, who is an Associate Professor of Urology at the University of Toronto and an attending urologist at the University Health Network in downtown Toronto. Dean completed his fellowship in functional urology at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and New York Presbyterian Hospital while Cornell Medical College, and I can proudly say he was one of my fellows. Yeah, he also completed his master's degree in clinical epidemiology and health services research at Weill Cornell Graduate School of Medical Sciences. His clinical and research interests include men's health, novel technologies for BPH, and overactive bladder. Thank, thank you for joining us, Dr. Elterman. Thank you, Dr. Kaplan. It's a pleasure to be here with you tonight. Uh, so Dean, I thought we could start with reviewing the educational need for this type of training uh, programming. 
and why we're doing this and what the need is for the community that we're going to be speaking to. Yeah, so you know the, the AUA Office of Education and New Technologies and Imaging Committee has done some research in BPH, uh, and there's a big need for the adoption of new technologies, and there's some barriers to getting access to this technology. There's also a bit of a lack of information, lack of knowledge, lack of training, and so hopefully by assessing this need, uh, we're going to tonight uh, allow our listeners to have a little bit more information about these new areas of BPH. So before we get into some of that uh, survey that was done, which was kind of interesting, can you share with <laughs> us what are some of the new BPH technologies and what are the ones that we're going to actually cover during this podcast? Yeah, so, you know, I think what's fantastic about BPH is that it, it continues to evolve and BPH doesn't remain uh, static. And even though uh, TERP has been around now for nearly a century, uh, we're really entering what I think is a, a renaissance of BPH technology. And there's just so much that has come out in recent years. And so tonight, I think we're gonna spotlight a couple. Uh, there is going to be uh, the prostatic urethral lift or Eurolift. We have convective water vapor therapy uh, or Resume. We have the high pressure uh, water jet ablation, which is also known as aqua ablation. And we have the newest uh, on the market, the ITIN, the temporarily implantable nitinol device or stent. So let's dig in a little bit uh, on this survey because I think it's it's kind of cool the way it all kind of played out. And it includes some of the technologies you just mentioned. It also uh, asked about robotic simple prostatectomy, prostate artery embolization. You mentioned the resume and aquablation. Also mentioned thulium laser nucleation of the prostate and laser ablation and the ITIN, as you mentioned. And the questions that was interesting is kind of what are the barriers to adoption? And the four options, if you will, were lack of knowledge, uh, lack of training, uh, access to technology, expensive to use, or not applicable to my practice. And it's interesting, uh, so let's just take, for example, comparing prostate urethral lift to uh, resume. And it seemed that uh, the, the biggest barrier uh, for prostatic urethral lift was either the access or maybe not applicable, and with resume, uh, it has probably to do with, again, more, more access to the technology. So different things have different uh, issues or barriers, and that's obviously for our audience very, very important. So do you think that the differences has to do with uh, the way the, the, the time that these came out, the, uh, the earlier they came out compared to each other, the more likely they were less of a, an issue to access to the technology? And what do you think as you started some to learn these things are the biggest barriers for you to start? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously new technologies, those that are first to market have an advantage of, of getting into the mindset of the urologists and, and people have just more experience uh, having it in their hands. Uh, but as more of these technologies come out, I think that uh, there's an opportunity for education and training. Obviously, urologists want to feel comfortable with the new technology and something that's new and shiny you know, there's always going to be those people who are the early adopters and who are really keen on the newest technology. And there's a lot of people who are waiting to see how it pans out. Maybe they want two years data or three years follow up before they uh, adopt them. And a lot of these technologies really only had FDA approval in 2014, 2017, some are even in 2020. So uh, I think time will adopted. It's very interesting to see that expense really wasn't uh, a major barrier, which is, I guess, nice to see. 
Uh, and it's really a matter of just getting these technologies into practice uh, whenever urologists and their healthcare systems are ready to support them. Yeah, I think it's a great point. And it seems that, and that's why we're doing this series and this podcast tonight, is to educate people because, as, as you alluded to, there's some type of lack of knowledge or lack of training. And it seems like the surgical procedures, the one that have to be done in the OR, had more of that barrier, for example, like the laser nucleations. It's not something that's easily adopted to the office. Uh, robot simple prostatectomy, those are the ones that clicked off the, the greatest amount of lack of knowledge, of lack of training. And it may be also the way we're trained to do it. And uh, you know, the AUA has done a very, very good job with videos and trying to, to train people as much as possible. But it seems like office procedures have a little less of that barrier than uh, surgical procedures. We'll have to kind of sort of see about it. So let's, let's sort of dig in now on some of these technologies. Um, let's talk a little bit, if you can explain, let's th do four of them that are really relatively new. Uh, the prostatic urethral lift, uh, convective water vapor therapy, or the resume, high-pressure saline hydrodissection, or, or the aquablation, and the temporary implantable night mold device. So if you can, for our audience, just explain each one, uh, how they're kind of done, and then we'll get into more of the data of each. So just explain what they actually are. Yeah. So uh, in no particular order, but we'll go through them maybe in terms of uh, their newness to the market. So the one that's been around the longest is the prostatic urethral lift or PUL, P-U-L, also known by its trade name, Urolift. And uh, this is essentially a transurethral um, suture or tab that's placed through uh, the prostate. And essentially the idea is that it pins back mechanically the lobes of the prostate. And so unlike other ablative types of therapies, this is a non-ablative way to really pull back like curtains, the lateral lobes of the prostate uh, to uh, create a channel through uh, which urine can pass. And Urolift was certainly the most um, uh, it's been on the market the longest now. They certainly have five-year data that was published a number of years ago, um, <clears throat> and it's been in the AUA guidelines. The next uh, other office-based procedure is Resume, or the convective water vapor therapy or ablation. This is still very much an office-based procedure. It can be done under just local anesthetic or if you want some light sedation. <clears throat> and this is a specially designed uh, cystoscopic handpiece. It's like a, a rigid scope. Uh, but it's very uh, slender and small, in fact. And on the tip of it is a specialized needle. It's about a centimeter. It's tapered. And the idea is that uh, you can inject this needle into the lobe of interest, the lateral lobe. And over nine seconds, uh, water vapor or heated steam is transmitted into this uh, lobe, the transition zone. And the heat from the steam causes the cells to essentially die. And then thus the prostate will shrink down and open up in size over about a three-month period. <clears throat> Both the uh, Eurolift and the Resume are probably procedures that take five, 10 minutes to perform, uh, and they can certainly be in quote-unquote office-based setting. They don't require uh, an operating room. Uh, the next procedure is aquablation, or the high-pressure water uh, dissection. Aquablation is completely different, so I wouldn't uh, miscategorize this as a minimally invasive uh, therapy. It's not really office-based, at least at this point in time. That may change. Uh, but in this operating-based uh, therapy, we essentially use real-time imaging with a transrectal ultrasound. And there's a specialized handpiece that's placed uh, transurethrally endoscopically. And at the very end of this uh, handpiece is a uh, small nozzle and very high-pressure water comes out like a jet. And it sweeps back and forth like a, uh, a windshield wiper, for example. 
but it's with such high pressure and high, such high speed that it actually ablates and removes the tissue. And what's unique is that you're using the real-time imaging to see the prostate live on ultrasound, and then using software on a flat screen, you're able to plan out where you want the water jet to remove the tissue. And then essentially you push a button with your, your foot and it executes your plan. And that's the robotic or automated part of this procedure. Uh, and so what it's able to do is really condense a larger, maybe 30, 40 hour, hour and a half long operation down into say less than 10 minutes because it's very rapid ablation. The fourth procedure, and I'm sure we'll go into all of these in more detail, is the temporary implantable nitinol device or ITIND. And this is a, a new device uh, recently a, a, uh, purchased by Olympus. And this again is office based. It could be done with a rigid or now a flexible scope. And essentially this uh, small device essentially uh, springs open inside the bladder neck and the prostatic urethra. So you place it through a scope, it expands in the bladder, you pull it back into the prostatic fossa and it has three arms, 12 o'clock, five and seven. And what they do is they essentially expand into the prostate and cause uh, ischemic necrosis through the pressure, resulting in these very slow, gentle opening and incisions of the bladder neck. And unlike some other devices or um, stents, after five to seven days, this uh, temporary nitinol device, the ITIN, is entirely remo uh, removed. You uh, backload it through a uh, Foley catheter with the tip cut off, and you can essentially collapse it like a, an umbrella, and you can remove it entirely from the patient. And so those are really the four main uh, novel BPH uh, technologies. And of course, there are a number under investigation uh, as well. So there's been a lot of data on certainly on lift and resume because they, as you alluded to, they've been out there. So let's just review the latest. So uh, there's been new data with Eurolift and resume, their uh, five-year data. So let's talk a little bit about that and some of the uh, more later aquablation data. You and I have uh, uh, been author, co-authors on that and you're the lead on, on one of them. And then the recently published data on ITIN. So why don't you share with us the uh, five-year data, or the more recent data, I should say, on lift and resume. Yeah, so uh, certainly the most hot off the press uh, in the Journal of Urology of the AUA uh, was the five-year resume data. So the resume two study was the main pivotal study uh, conducted uh, in men randomized two to one to either a sham or resume. And that data has now matured out to five years and it was just published. And the main takeaways uh, were number one, the surgical reoperation rate remains very low at 4.4%. And that didn't actually increase from year three or year four. It was completely flat and stable. And the other takeaway, <clears throat> excuse me, is that the percentage of men who went back on some BPH medication was just over around 10%. Uh, and so when you put that together, it's around 14, 15% cumulative surgical or medical retrieval rate at five years, which I think is actually really quite good. Um, it's when you compare it to the LIFT study, uh, which had its five-year data, uh, their surgical retreatment rate <clears throat> was closer to about 14%. Uh, and of course, they had a percentage of men going back on medication as well. Um, the, the main recent study when it comes to Eurolift that's of interest was the MedLift study, which was looking at the median lobe uh, and its application. Because in the original LIFT study, having a median lobe was an exclusionary factor for uh, a Eurolift, <clears throat> and therefore, in the AUA guidelines, in fact, it was prohibited to do it with a uh, median lobe. But in this MedLift study, they were actually able to demonstrate that in 
small to medium sized median lobes, there's a technique where you can essentially pull the median lobe into the prostatic fossa sort of backwards and then pin it down to either one side or the other and get it out of the way. And if you have a prostate that's amenable to that, the study actually showed fairly equivalent outcomes to just the regular lift study in terms of improvement in IPSS and flow. And so there may be some small amendments in, in terms of the wording of being able to do a Euro lift with a small to medium sized middle lobe, of course, if you were to do this technique. So those are the main uh, takeaways from the lift and resume. Of course, there are things around uh, sexual function, ejaculatory dysfunction, which the studies have really shown no significant uh, hindrance to sexual function. Um, and then we get into the water study. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about those, Steve? Sure. So, and just to emphasize for our audience, the, the, at least what the appealing part is, and we'll get a little bit deeper into this a little bit later, is um, the ease that it's done, usually in the office, and you can preserve sexual function, which a lot of uh, patients um, kind of enjoy or, or you know, seek. But let's not talk about the aquablation, which is more of a hospital procedure. So aquablation, again, is this uh, real-time, image-guided, robotic water jet ablation performed in the operating room. And there are two pivotal studies that have come out, and they're notable. The first was the water study, which was in prostates between 30 to 80 milliliters, so sort of a standard BPH cohort. And what's unique compared to other BPH uh, studies is that in the water study, the active comparator group was a TERP. It was not a placebo or a sham. And so in the water study, which has now reported out to, I believe, three years follow-up, they actually showed uh, just as good of an outcome in terms of IPSS symptom improvement, improvement in QMAX. Uh, it, it actually had fewer side effects uh, in terms of safety profile than TERP, particularly in, in larger size glands. And they were actually able to preserve um, uh, erectile and ejaculatory function. The uh, erectile dysfunction rate is, is there's no de novo. And with ejaculatory dysfunction in the, in the water study, again, it was, it was less than 10% or so. It's quite low. Um, and then what's unique then is a second study, the water two study was done, which is unique in that it was a large gland study. And that was for prostates between 80 to 150 mils. And that was a single arm study. And again, it demonstrated impressively, similarly to the water study, very significant improvements in flow rate, IPSS symptom score in these challenging prostates that would have otherwise had to be done by say open simple prostatectomy or robotic simple prostatectomy or an enucleation. And so I think the takeaway from these studies is that with the robotic execution of the procedure, you're able to replicate or even improve upon something which would take many, many years of learning in terms of TERP skill or simple prostatectomy skills. So one of the advantages, at least initially, was how quick it is. And you and I have both done uh, a lot of aquablations, and it really is short. I mean, we've done large prostates can take less than 10 minutes in terms of that part of it. But one of the early uh, issues that happened with aquablation was bleeding because uh, you know when you're power washing the prostate away and you're just using compression on a catheter, uh, you can still have bleeding and maybe the need for transfusion. So what are some of the um, modifications, and again, we've both published on this, to decrease the amount of bleeding that happens with after aquablation? Yeah, so I think the something to bear in mind is that aquablation is actually, the technique has evolved over the last four or five years. And in fact, 
what was really interesting is that a lot of the um, the coming out of aquablation, a lot of the attention it was first getting uh, was around the time of the Water 1, Water 2 study. And what was unique about the Water 2 study was that it was very big, juicy prostates. And the study was designed to be completely athermal, meaning you could not do any sort of cautery. Uh, and in fact, they used something called a catheter tensioning device, which was really a very heavy type of traction device. And that, in retrospect, led to, I think, higher rates of bleeding, sort of in the range of 7 to 9%. And then with this realization, the technique actually changed. And we realized that the majority of bleeding comes from the bladder neck, where the blood supply comes into the prostate by and large. And by making this a modification where at the end of aquablation, you change over to a resection loop to irrigate out some of the clot and the debris, et cetera. And then you do something called focal bladder neck cautery, FNBC. And the idea is that you can essentially systematically move from three o'clock all the way to nine o'clock, removing about two to five millimeters of this fluffy tissue, which is created at the base to really identify if there are any significant bleeders at the bladder neck. And then you just apply a very limited amount of focal bladder neck cautery, monopolar or bipolar. And the result of this very small modification has actually led to a very impressive transfusion rate. And something that we just published demonstrates that in over two and a half thousand consecutive cases, the transfusion rate for aquablation globally is now 0.8%. It's less than 1% bleeding rate for aquablation. And so this is very much in keeping and is in fact better than TERP, bipolar TERP, even some green light data and enucleation data. So it's very much now, at least in line, if not better than other competing BPH technologies. Okay, great, agreed. And uh, I think that modification certainly helped a lot and the adoption I think will be a little bit faster. Um, you've had a lot of experience uh, with the ITIN device. Can you just share with us some of the, uh, at least the pivotal data that helped get approved? Yes, so, you know, ITIN really, I think represents almost a new class of minimally invasive treatments. Something I've written uh, about is something called the T-MIST, which is a true minimally invasive surgical therapy. And I think this notion of a T-MIST, which is an off-the-shelf solution that you can just grab in your cystosuite and put it in with a flexible scope uh, is a very simple thing. And so the pivotal study, which was conducted in the United States and Canada, which was the MTO3 study, has again demonstrated fairly similar outcomes to the other minimally invasive treatments like Furolift, for example, where you're seeing about a 10-point 10, 10 improvement in IPSS. Uh, we see a, a modest improvement in QMAX, um, and it seems, it looks at least, the one-year data was just published in the Gold Journal uh, that I co-authored with uh, Bilal Chugtai from Cornell. And I think that, um, you know, ITIN represents a new type of therapy uh, that maybe would be a, a very nice competitor to say medical therapy. So patients come in with BPH LUTs and you pop in one of these items, say for about five to seven days and remove it. And the data so far, the published data at one year uh, demonstrates that it looks quite good. And I will say that there now is two year and three year data published from previous uh, European studies as well. Okay, so let's, now that uh, folks who have been uh, listening to this have an idea about the technologies that are out there and some of the data, let's drill down into some clinical situations. So for each of the um, four things that we've just talked about, uh, where's the procedure done? Rigid or flexible scope, office or OR. So I'll go through each one. 
and, and, then, uh, and then the anesthetic that you would use or you can use. So Eurolift, where is it done? Office or OR? Eurolift can absolutely be done in an office. Uh, it can be done under just uh, local anesthetic. Um, and by local, I think a bit of oral sedation, a bit of uh, oral anxiolytic, or oral anxiolytic, oral analgesic, um, a few chilled xylocaine gels. Um, we use something called Penthrox, which is available in many parts of uh, the world, a few states. Um, and I think it could be done. Of course, you could give intravenous sedation, give a bit of propofol uh, if you wanted. It is a rigid scope. And remember, Eurolift is a proprietary scope uh, that has one implant per handpiece, at least at this point. Um, and so patients do need to be able to tolerate um, a rigid scope going in. And what, percent, what percentage of patients after Eurolift have a catheter, go home with a catheter? The rule of thumb, at least in my practice, is if you put in four or less implants, um, you I would do a bladder fill and see if they can void before they go. There are many who who send everybody home with no uh, no catheter. Um, I'm a bit on the fence if you put in more than four implants, uh, but it's certainly something that you could try in your practice. What about you, Steve? Do you send anyone home with the, without a catheter for your lift? Yeah, so probably around, and this is con con consistent with some of the other data, probably around 20, 25%, about 20%, I should say, go home with a catheter. And it's usually because of bleeding, because, you know, when you're planting them, um, you don't know what you hit. You can hit a blood vessel. So if they're a little darker, I'll send them home overnight with a catheter and then take it out, which, but most of them go home without a catheter. Okay, resume. Officer OR, anesthetic. Yep. Resume is uh, office-based as well. Uh, very similar anesthetic to Eurolift. You could definitely do um, oral anxiolytic uh, analgesic, some chilled xylocaine. Uh, you could do it with IV propofol sedation or, or something like that, or someone, a patient-administered inhaler. Uh, there's some patient-administered nitrous, which is very good. It is technically a rigid scope, um, um, but a much slender, thinner one. Um, with this procedure, I typically do send people home with a catheter, and it really is the mechanism of action, right? Uh, it is heat-based, and with any heat that's applied, you would ex expect the tissue to swell. There's going to be edema. And really, uh, the secret is trying to figure out the duration of catheterization. In the Resume 2 study, the average duration of the catheter was 72 hours. Um, a bit of a rule of thumb is, you know, if it's 30 grams, three days, 40 grams, four days, you could go up. Some people just standardize it at say three days or five days. Uh, if you do larger glands, you may want to leave it in a bit longer. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so that's sort of my experience with uh, with Resume. And how high a with, volume? Uh, aqua, yeah. How high a volume will you go with Eurolift, prostate volume, I should say, in resume, or, or Resume? What's kind yeah. of your range? So I think the upper limit for uh, whether, you know, the lower limit is always about, you know, 25, 30 grams, uh, give or take. Um, the upper limit for Eurolift is probably around 80. You might be able to push it to 100. The issue is that as prostates get bigger, what they call the capsular tab, the part of the Eurolift implant that's trying to reach the outer part of the prostate may not reach. And that's the whole point is that you need to have a tab or this little anchor on the outside of the prostate capsule and then one on the luminal side so that they squeeze together. And according to uh, the people at, at, at Eurolift, at Neotrack, it, it doesn't really reach the capsule if you get too big. Um, 
notably for resume, uh, we have, I've tended to go larger. I will say that uh, in Canada where I work, there is no labeling uh, for an upper limit of size. So FDA, it might say 30 to 80. Canada, it says 30 or above. So we can very easily do um, large glands. And I've definitely pushed this technology to prostates well over 100, uh, even up to 150 mils with very good success. We're going to have a paper coming out very soon. Um, but the approval, certainly in the United States, and what the clinical trials have all demonstrated its efficacy in glands between 30 to 80. Okay, so let's do the ITIN device next, <clears throat> simply because it's an office procedure. And how big of volumes, I, I presume you do this under local as well, because it's a flexible. Yeah. Uh, how big volumes do you go up to or have gone up to? Yeah, so with the ITIN, it, it was probably good for about 25 grams to say 60, 65. I don't know if I would do a, a very large prostate because it does get quite long. Uh, and these, uh, the current ITIN is designed with a fixed length. They may come out with a larger, longer XL size over time, we don't know. Mm -hmm. um, these are catheter free. There's, there's no need to leave in a catheter. Uh, it's, the new technique is purely by flexible cystoscopy and it could be done with a very little um, topical anesthetic. Okay. And obviously aquablation is going to be done in the operating room. And how big a volume, how low have you done and how big have you gone? Yeah. So, <clears throat> you know, what I think what's unique about aquablation is that it's, it's size and shape independent uh, technology. And so, you know, you could do anything from a 30 gram prostate to a 300 gram prostate. There, there is no upper limit to aquablation because you're able to divide the prostate into different portions. You can do sort of an upper row and then drop the tip of the handpiece down and then do a lower row of a prostate. If the prostate's very long, you could do almost like a front section and a back section. Um, um, <clears throat> the, the preferred anesthesia for this is a spinal anesthetic actually. Um, and that way, you know, you can put uh, a fairly large size uh, catheter uh, and some traction after the operation and there really weren't there won't be any issues around bl uh, bladder spasms and, and patient comfort. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, listen, I, I've done very large, probably the biggest is like 280, 285, uh, but you could go higher uh, with aquablation and it really is size and shape independent. Um, the, the smaller prostates, say less than 100, we definitely try to get out the same day. I don't know if that's been your experience yet, Steve. We're sort of definitely pushing to try to get more and more of these day cases, particularly the smaller glands. Yeah, we're evolving. I mean, right now we patient, put patients on anti-muscarinics uh, the day of, um, and we send them home. Uh, most of the patients actually have stayed overnight, but that's because of insurance issues as opposed to anything else. But I think the evolution will be with smaller prostates like with uh, TUR, that we can get them out a little bit earlier. Okay, so quickly, let's go through some specific clinical situations over the next four or five minutes. Um, you have a patient with a middle, significant middle lobe intravesical prostatic protrusion is greater than a centimeter. Uh, which of these, obviously aquablation you've mentioned, but of the minimally invasive, resume, Eurolift, itint, which would you use? Uh, resume. Resume is an ablative technology. There's no contraindication to middle lobes. Uh, the data, in my experience, would show that you can do very large middle lobes, small middle lobes with resume because the steam will really shrink that lobe. Uh, completely away. Whereas if it was a really big middle lobe, I think it would still be obstructing with uh, an ITIND or a, a Eurolift. I agree. Um, mm -hmm. Anticoagulated patients. 
tricky. There, there is no um, data yet on on doing uh, endocrine patients with any of these procedures. It's purely anecdotal. Um, I think uh, ITIN's probably safe because it's non-ablative. Uh, Eurolift is often okay, but you are puncturing the prostate and you do run the risk of bleeding. And of course, if it bleeds on the capsule side, you're going to bleed into the pelvis. It's obviously a very rare complication, but it has been reported in the MOD database. And with Resume, again, you just don't have any data, uh, only anecdotally. Many have said it's okay, but it just takes that one bleeder. And aquablation, I would not do on an anticoagulated patient, just because, again, it's a thermal ablation. And the reality is most of most anticoagulant patients, you can bridge them anyway. So uh, it becomes less and less of an issue as, uh, as we've done more and more of these procedures. Um, sexually active patients who, uh, who want to ejaculate. All four of these technologies actually have pretty good uh, sexual side effect profiles. Uh, Eurolift, I think, uh, uniquely really reports no ejaculatory dysfunction. Uh, the resume data, the pivotal study, showed no de novo ejaculatory dysfunction. There are some subsequent studies which have shown some reduced ejaculate volume or dry ejaculation with resume, but I would put that number somewhere between 4 to 8%, perhaps. Um, with the most recent large clinical trial for aquablation, which was the open water study, de novo uh, retrograde ejaculation was somewhere around six to eight percent. It's actually very, very low because the way that aquablation is designed is that it does this special cutting shape at the apex called the butterfly cut. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it does try to preserve that uh, critical tissue over the ejaculatory ducts. Um, and ITIND, uh, again, we have a paper coming out <clears throat> which does not show any uh, de novo erectile or ejaculatory dysfunction with that prostate, temporary prostate stent. Okay. Um, so I think we've given a good background to our audience about the minimally invasive and aquablation. So let's pivot a little bit and talk about the current guidelines and the guidelines that will be coming out in a couple of months uh, in Las Vegas. So medical therapy really have not been revised since 2011, so it's, it's been a decade, and a bunch of new medications have come out on market. You know, there's been the traditional alpha blocker and the 5-alpha reductase inhibitor. So in a couple of moments, give us the, um, the newer medications that are, have come out to treat male low urinary tract symptoms. Yeah, you know, we have to think about male lots as storage and voiding symptoms. Mostly on the voiding side of things, we still have our standby alpha blocker, 5-ARI, and the um, uh, PD-5 to Dalafil. I think what's really evolved over the last decade, since 2011, is this greater appreciation of male storage symptoms and this combination and overlap between OAB and BPH. And I think there, we've moved away from this uh, dogma that men with prostates who have uh, LUTs um, can never receive treatment for OAB because it's going to put them into retention. And of course, many studies uh, have demonstrated really no increased risk with the more contemporary antimuscarinic medications and certainly no real no risk with the beta-3 agonist mirabegron. And so I think uh, a greater understanding of this mix of treating voiding and storage, maybe a little bit from column A and a little bit from column B, and you can absolutely treat a man whose most bothersome symptom is storage in nature, pre-emergency nocturia, with an OAB-targeted medication first, and then you could always go after the BPH second. 
Right, and also PD-5 inhibitors um, have now become obviously more widely used uh, with specifically tadalafil um, being uh, one of the treatments for lower tract yeah. symptoms. Um, and um, there'll be specific guidelines that are going to be uh, shared in Las Vegas at the AUA, and I think uh, it'll be exciting to hear, uh, being on the guidelines committee, some of the uh, recommendations that we make. So we'll, we'll, uh, we'll let our audience uh, eagerly await uh, uh, that. Uh, they'll be coming, as I said, in September. So let's now specifically talk about the guidelines. Um, we've, and I think we've covered a lot of that in terms of prostate size. Uh, more specifically, uh, these are the, as you said, 20, uh, 30, 30 to 80 gram glands, although there's data that's out there, but those are the more traditional recommendations. Middle lobes have been, as you alluded to, with Resume. There's a technology also that you mentioned with uh, Eurolift. Um, I tend, uh, at least in the previous guidelines, were not really mentioned, um, simply because the data had not been out and we'll see what happens in September. Now, one of the things that we emphasized was uh, in the guidelines is it's very important because we talked about prostate size is uh, doing diagnostic tests. So uh, other than symptom scores and the traditional stuff, how do you assess prostate size? So I think uh, a proper volumetric size assessment is really important. Why? So much of the data is based upon clinical trials, which have very stringent inclusion and exclusion criteria. So if you're gonna extrapolate and quote your patient some predicted outcome or some statistic, you have to be able to base it on something in reality. Um, and also so many of these procedures are based upon fitting in a certain category. So as I said, there seems to be an upper limit of, of possibility with many of these procedures. And so, Knowing the prostate volume ahead of time is great. In my practice, I get a volumetric assessment on every single male less patient. Um, I've had people refer to me for surgical management to BPH and their prostate's 18 cc's when I do an ultrasound. Surprise. Um, and so I think a volume assessment, whether it's uh, ultrasound, transrectal, transabdominal, if they happen to get some um, CT or MRI done for other reasons, I think that's great. So I really am a big advocate of volume assessment. Um, even almost more so than a cystoscopy, but of course, you know, you, it, ideally you would like to do both uh, every single time. Yeah, I agree. And for, uh, before, at least I'll do any minimally invasive surgical therapy, I will do a cystoscopy and a, and a transrectal ultrasound uh, for, uh, for size and middle lobe uh, presence. Um, yes, no pressure flow studies prior yes, to I like, I, I like I like pressure flow. I mean, at least I want to a uroflometry and a PVR done, uh, maybe at the time of the office visit at the very least, for sure. Do you do urodynamics or pressure flow studies themselves? Not necessarily. I mean, I think if a patient uh, presents with mixed symptomatology, you're not sure if they're emptying their bladder completely, you're not sure if they have good detrusor contractility. Um, you know, if you just don't get a good sense of them being a clear-cut case, then urodynamics are always very helpful and, and I would do them. Okay, so in the last 10 minutes or so, uh, I think we've given the environment and the playing field. So let's compare patient experiences with these new treatments in relation to the more established uh, types of uh, therapies or even abandoned therapies, you know, uh, like tuna and uh, microwave. So let's compare the minimally invasive versus medications. Um, so let's specifically medications, because we've talked historically, I think most people in the audience know the short term 
complications of medications, but discuss some of the more recent data about long-term complications like depression, dementia, um, even suicide risk with some of the traditional medications, just very briefly, uh, just share with our audience. Yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely always been some concern about exposure to see via some of these medications. You know, there was this uh, post-finasteride syndrome, which was described uh, maybe a little bit controversially, but certainly there are many young men who have described even a brief exposure to a 5-ARI resulting in prolonged side effects of uh, sexual dysfunction, um, uh, et cetera, despite even discontinuing the medication. And then there's been a, a new uh, series of papers coming out looking at, again, things like depression, uh, dementia, um, uh, cardiac issues, congestive heart failure, for example. Uh, and so more and more we're wondering about that balance of benefit versus risk. Before it was like, well, there isn't a big risk to taking these medicines. Of course, if you get side effects, you could just discontinue. But maybe there is an implication for prolonged exposure to these medications and risk. And the benefit is really rather marginal. If you look at how much people improve on these drugs, it's maybe three to four points on an IPSS. So that risk-benefit analysis is, is coming under question. I don't think it's definitive, but more of us are pausing to, to at least think about it. Yeah, and I think also, you know, if you take a 50-year-old, um, are we going to really commit them to 10, 20, 30 years of a therapy. Um, and now that we're seeing long-term complications, it's interesting, we see this with other classes of medications because as we've gotten older and medications like statins, for example, there's data on statins in long-term use and, and uh, the more traditional antihypertensive. So I think this is something that's an interesting area of research and we hopefully will get a little bit more drilled down in terms of what to do. So let's now compare. And you also, just the last thing, the last sure. thing too is you have to contextualize it against the alternatives. Previously, the, med the medicines were a great advance because the only option was a TERP. Now with the invention of these MISTs, these office-based minimally invasive treatments, that that calculus of you know, the big trade-offs, it, it changes a bit. No, I agree. And, and I think uh, people like options. And uh, as we'll talk about in a few moments, uh, there's going to be even more options that we'll talk about in the future. So let's compare now the minimally invasive, and maybe we shouldn't be comparing minimally invasive to surgery. Maybe we should be comparing minimally invasive to medications, uh, which I think is actually a more interesting area. So let's, totally so let's talk a little bit about um, aquablation versus, let's say, simple prostatectomy. Um, you have a 175-gram prostate. You're not comfortable doing a, t a TUR or maybe a green light. Some would do a homely laser nucleation. We didn't really talk too much about it tonight in the interest of time. But let's say in your armamentarium, you have a simple prostatectomy, robotic, open, or aquablation, 175 gram prostate. What would you do? Uh, listen, I'm, I'm an early adopter to aquablation, and I think that the data would support it. Uh, I think what I'm able to do with an aquablation uh, I can I can get a very similar outcome to a simple prostatectomy. Obviously, a simple prostatectomy is far more morbid, uh, whether you're doing it uh, open or robotic. Uh, with aquablation, I'm using real-time imaging, um, and I'm removing a, a really good amount of, of adenoma, but the patient uh, doesn't have uh, the incisions, uh, and also uh, it's much more reproducible. In other words, I don't know how many of the residents getting trained these days, how many simple prostatectomies they do. We've done some research here in Canada. They probably do less than 10 in an entire residency. 
And aquablation takes away the learning curve. In fact, there is no learning curve with aquablation essentially because you know, the very first aquablation case, your outcome is gonna be the same as your 100, approximately, approximately. Um, I mean, I do think you get um, used to it. So probably the real learning curve is maybe say 15 to 20 cases, but I think you would get that done very quickly. So for me, uh, as someone who's been in a doctor, I think aquablation has allowed us to do these very big prostates in an operating room. And again, very quickly, you mentioned the time, it's, it's much more short, short over an operation. So again, just for our audience, you know, it's not what we're advocating or not advocating because there are people who are superb laser nucleators with homium with thulium, and that works for those who uh, are advocates. It's a great procedure. Simple prostatectomy for those who do it. It's a great procedure. So you know, I happen to prefer aquablation as well. But the point is, is that there's a lot of good techniques. And our role tonight is just to let people know that. We're not pushing one technology versus the other. It's to really inform you what's out there. And if you're comfortable with it, uh, that's important too. So in a couple of minutes, and then we'll have some closing remarks, uh, future directions for surgical BPH treatment. So can you list some of the things that uh, the next minute or two that people should be looking for? Yeah, so I think surgical technique, um, there's going to continue to be a lot of innovation in the minimally invasive space, particularly in things that can be office-based, um, particularly with uh, stents. So there are a number of prostate stents that are uh, currently under phase three clinical trials, um, such as uh, Zenflow, um, Proteon, Medion's Expander, uh, Xflow, we've got the Butterfly. Um, and all of these are stents which are designed uh, to open up the prostate, to essentially stent it open. Um, some of them are meant to stay in permanently. Some of them are meant to be semi-permanent. And that's really what the studies are trying to uh, demonstrate. They're all made of nitinol. And they're much different in terms of the way they're designed compared to the historical stents, the Urolume, the Memocat, which we all, <clears throat> as a urologic community, have sort of nightmares about because we were pulling them out and they, they had a lot of incrustation migration, incontinence, and irritative symptoms. And these new stents have a much smaller footprint within the prostate and I think are gonna be much better tolerated. The other very interesting minimally invasive treatment that's coming out um, is something called the um, uh, Eurotronic um, Optilum Balloon. And essentially this is bringing back an old concept of balloon dilation of the prostate, but adding a new twist and that's a drug coating. So uh, in the late 1990s, we looked at uh, balloon dilation of the prostate, which essentially caused an anterior commissurotomy, a cracking open of the prostate at 12 o'clock. But the prostate would essentially seal back down and heal itself. And what this uh, new drug-coated balloon that has paclitaxel in it is that you get that opening and uh, stretching of the prostate at 12 o'clock, causing this anterior commissurotomy. But the absorption of the medication in this freshly uh, exposed surface actually prevents the prostate from closing down. And again, the prostate, uh, it appears to stay open with um, better, longer sustained improvements. And so I think these minimally invasive stent-like procedures and possibly this balloon procedure uh, are very exciting. And I think a lot of the procedures that are already on the market are going to continue to evolve and improve. Uh, such as aquablation uh, or some of the other um, minimum invasive treatments that may um, have some fine-tuning adjustments with next-generation products. 
Yeah, and certainly as more and more people get to do them, we'll hopefully get more homogeneity of results. Yeah, the Optalum device, I'm the principal investigator, we're pretty very excited about the data because we think it's kind of halfway between minimally invasive and surgery, but time will tell and we'll hear over the next uh, couple of years where that kind of fits. So on behalf of the AUA, I would like to thank everyone for joining us today and a special thanks to uh, Dr. Elterman. It's a great pleasure to see how he has progressed and become one of the leaders in the space and for sharing his expertise with us. I would also like to thank all the faculty for the upcoming virtual course series to accompany this podcast for sharing their expertise with the global urologic community and also thank and recognize the Olympus Corporation of the Americas and Teleflex for their support of this educational series throughout an independent educational grant. For more information or to register for the upcoming virtual course series on the surgical management of BPH, please visit auanet.org backslash university. And again, thank you uh, to uh, everyone and uh, hope you'll enjoy both this podcast as well as the educational series. We hope to see you at the AUA and uh, we'll present the uh, AUA guidelines. So uh, thank you and enjoy. Thank you.